The newly crowned King Charles, perhaps, very much in the news lately. The soon-to-be home-run King Aaron Judge. King Arthur, or LeBron James, his nickname is the King. Or do you think of King Jesus? You know, Jesus' kingship is regularly spoken of in Christian circles, and has been ever since he started preaching that the kingdom of heaven is here, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then saying later to his disciples, much later after the resurrection, that all authority has been given to me. The kingship and kingdom of Jesus is a regularly recurring Bible theme. The apostles in the New Testament spoke of Jesus having been given a name above every name so that at his name, everyone would bow. Sounds like a king. And Christians ever since have sung songs like we sang this morning, the king in all his beauty, all creatures of our God and king singing the song that we just sang, glorious, this shepherd and king, Jesus. But when you, specifically you, hear the title, king, does Jesus come to mind most? Or when you are singing songs like we did this morning, songs to King Jesus and songs about King Jesus, do you think about what you're reading and what you're singing? And of course, here would be, could be a time to springboard into a discussion regarding eschatology, the doctrine, that's the fancy word for the doctrine of last things. We could jump into an examination also of the doctrinal systems and thought structures about how exactly to sort out our convictions regarding the exact nature and timing and meanings of what we mean when we say things like the kingdom of Jesus and all of its implications for our lives. But at the moment, all I'm talking about is the objective, undeniable fact that Jesus is king. Set aside for a moment at least those potentially debatable questions around merely man-made systems and just consider the kingship of Jesus. How do you think about it? We've sung about it. What did you mean when you sang it? Did you mean anything at all? In VBS, just a couple of months ago, the, king, the kids sang a couple of times throughout the week. A simple song, he is king, he is king, Jesus Christ is king of kings, and his power shall reign forever and ever. Why do we have our children sing this song? Why do I call this exposition of Matthew's gospel that we've been going through for coming up on a year now, the unexpected kingdom? Well, I think that today's text, certainly along with the rest of the context surrounding it, that we've already begun to examine and will continue to do so in the weeks and months to come, will help us with all of this. Let's read it again. Linux did a fine job reading this. Let's read it again. Verses 14 through 17 of Matthew 8. When Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took 
our illnesses and bore our diseases. Four realities that I see in this text regarding Jesus' kingly reign and authority. Four realities. The first is that it reaches everyone. Jesus' kingly reign and authority reaches everyone. I've already pointed this out earlier in our study, but I'll say it again. Each of the individuals healed by Jesus in this first group of three miracle stories was, by nature, someone who would have seemed to the Jews to be an outsider to the kingdom of God. The leper in verses 1 through 4 was unclean. The Roman centurion, which Brian uh, preached about last week, was a Gentile. And now in today's text, we have Peter's mother-in-law. And Peter's mother-in-law was a woman. And if you think lumping these three into this common disadvantaged category is a stretch, I will grant you that a plain, simple reading of these few verses simply identifies Peter's mother-in-law as a victim of a serious sickness. There's nothing explicit in the text that clues us into Jesus thinking along the lines of making sure he singled out uh, women, even though they were not regarded, or perhaps even because they were not regarded with the love and respect that image bearers deserve in that culture. But the fact is that this was a reality in the context of Jesus's day. And Jesus ministers to her just like he did a Gentile, just like he did a leper. And Matthew is very strategic in his compilation of stories. And so it seems clear that this is an intentional identification on Matthew's part of yet another person who would have seemed to the Jews to be an outsider. Women in society at that time were viewed as second-class citizens. In fact, one of the Jewish prayers that the Jewish men prayed each day ended with this phrase, I thank you that I was not born a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. Women were segregated to the rear of the synagogue behind a screen, much like in Muslim mosques today. And in some specific Jewish traditions, even touching a woman would have been considered unclean. And that, of course, was not consistent with the Old Testament law. That was one of those infamous hedges around hedges around hedges that certain Jews made to try and stay as far away from uncleanness as possible. But as they did this, they corrupted the law and forsook the heart of the law, which we know is love. And that's not what God wants at all. Eve was made just as much in the image of God as Adam. Women are just as important to God as men. Women are said in the New Testament to be equal co-heirs with men in the inheritance of eternal life given to all who trust in Jesus for salvation. And so, that's consistent. What, what Jesus is doing here is consistent with that. Jesus was showing that his kingdom was to surpass all religious or social barriers which is consistent with what the Apostle Paul would say later on when he said that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female. And so Jesus' reign reaches everyone. It reaches lepers, Gentiles, and women just as much as any clean Jewish man. But also note the intimacy and tenderness of this event. This healing 
of Peter's mother-in-law takes place in Peter's house. We've seen Jesus healing with a crowd of people. When the leper was miraculously healed, it seems reasonable to conclude there were people around. There were certainly other times when many people came to him over and over, and so there would have been crowds of people. It's not, a, it's not a healing in a big crowd. It's not a healing with potential diplomatic international relations like the healing of a Gentile, a Roman centurion servant. It's just Peter's home. And the creator, King Jesus, is there healing Peter's wife's mama. Luke's account in chapter 4 tells us that they appealed to him on her behalf, so perhaps there were some other disciples there or Peter's family and friends, maybe his brother Andrew, or if it just means Peter and his wife. But what's clear is that this woman was sick. And she had, the text says, a fever at the end of verse 14. In this context, a fever would have been regarded as a disease of its own, not just like we know it to be today, a symptom of something else going on. We know now that you can have a fever for any number of reasons. But then at that time, just having one at all was the thing. It was a big deal. Some have suggested that perhaps Peter's mother-in-law may have had malaria, but we don't know. We do know, though, that rabbis weren't allowed to touch feverish people, but Jesus did. Jesus is no ordinary Jewish rabbi, and so Verse 15, he touched her. And once again, the power behind the touch of the Messiah is staggering. And so the second reality regarding Jesus' reign and authority is that, number two, it is immense in power. Verse 15, he touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. Luke who is, was a physician, says in Luke 4, 39, that immediately the fever left her. The physician wanted to make sure that note was clear. Immediately the fever left her. There's some really important things to note in this short verse. This phrase that you see here at the end, she rose and began to serve him, ought not necessarily be to us a lesson on serving Jesus in response to his work in your life. That's certainly a proper mindset, no matter what passage you're reading. But Matthew is not pointing to that here. What he is simply doing is showing that the effect of the healing was immediate, such that she rose and began to serve him, began to be hospitable and say things perhaps like, would you like a drink? You want some bread? Whatever else it might have been. This verse is showing us that Jesus' authority extends to every molecule, every atom of the human body. And when he touches a sick body, those molecules and atoms have to obey. And so, Matthew wants us to see that it's not like he touched her and then she started to feel better and began to recover, and in the next few days was well enough to get back to her normal routines of hospitality and care for people in her home. No, he touches her, and it goes away right away. She was immediately healed and got right back to what it meant to host a guest in her home. It's beautiful. In fact, I don't know if you've seen the uh, uh, 
depiction of the life of Jesus in the recent series, The Chosen, but this scene where the mother-in-law is healed and gets up and is portrayed by a, a wonderful actress doing a great job acting like a Jewish lady. Why, why haven't we done this? And why haven't we taken care of that? And where's this? And this is a mess and I need to clean this up. It's a great possible depiction of what it might have been like when she was healed. Matthew is telling about her rising to serve as an indication of how immediate his healing was. And it shouldn't be over-spiritualized to be a lesson about how to respond to Jesus' healing, even though that application is just always there, no matter what situation we're in. The point is, Jesus' exercise of power and authority is not restrained or limited by the laws of physics. Have you ever watched the great... British Baking Show. I know I'm going to see some hands right over here in the front row. I think Tara and Paul do too. The Great British Baking Show. When they're making something, sometimes they have to take what they've put together and put it underneath the oven in a what? A proving drawer. I'm not going to say it with a British accent. They put it in the proving drawer to make sure that what they are getting ready to bake will properly develop in the time of waiting for the laws of physics and chemistry and whatever other things I don't understand will take over in these atoms and molecules in the dough for a little while before it's ready. But Jesus' power over molecules and atoms doesn't work that way. Same thing goes for what we ran into as a family last week. As some of you know, we were in Michigan for a family wedding, and one of the uh, families, Kate's brother, Paul and Liz, our mission partners, brought their new puppy with them, and there were several accidents in the house with this adorable little puppy. We had to get the carpet cleaner out, and what do you have to do when you have carpet cleaner? You have to spray it, and then what? Leave it for a good five minutes, 10 minutes or whatever before you get to scrubbing because you've got to let those chemicals exercise their power over the dirt and the smell. But Jesus's authority over molecules and atoms isn't like that. It's not limited by the laws of nature and physics. Jesus authored those laws. He's the creator and sustainer of the universe. He's the king of kings and Lord of lords. And so no wonder this poor, sick woman's body was healed Instantly, Jesus' authority is immense in power. Third, Jesus' reign and authority overcomes sin's power. So it has power over physical things, over nature, over bodies. But we also see in verse 16 that that evening they brought others to him. Now, who knows if this is just by what we might call happenstance and that people were already on their way to see Jesus or if word was spreading again about a healing that took place in the area or if some disciples were rounding up some more people. We don't know. Whatever the reasons, another crowd gathers. That evening, they brought to him many. Just pause for a moment and consider how weary must Jesus have been at times? He was the perfect God-man, but he was the God-man. And over and over again, crowds of people press in on him and ask for his help. Some of us can't bear the thought of another dirty diaper or a phone call with another needy friend or family member or another crisis at work. Imagine having many who were oppressed by demons coming and looking to you for help. So no wonder Jesus would go away to desolate places to pray. No wonder he spent so much time with his father. 
He worked hard. He ministered faithfully. He exerted himself for the good of others over and over and over again on his road to the cross, even before his crucifixion on it. But it says that those who were brought to him had demons and also that he cast out the spirits. Now, this phraseology, this wording, the demons and spirits in this passage may actually have been an expression that Matthew used simply to refer to sick people. Because at that time, an evil spirit, quote unquote, often would be a way to reference symptoms of a disease or a disease itself, just in terms of nomenclature and and the uh, terminology that would have been used in society. Now, certainly, we also know that actual demonic activity was something Jesus dealt with as well. But it's interesting to note, and it's probably worth having in your mind at least a little bit, because the context of this passage is Jesus specifically dealing with healing people's diseases. So whether it was actual demonic activity or what we would consider maybe a little bit more ordinary physical sickness that then would have been used or would have been referred to with the phrase demons and the spirits, we're not for sure. But in any event, whether it's an exorcism or not, the point that Matthew is making has to do with the authority and power of Jesus over sin and its power. Look at the second part of verse 16. This could probably go with the second point as well. With a word, he cast out these spirits and healed all who were sick. When others exercised demons or sought to perform healings, they would utter elaborate incantations and claim others' authority. Something like, in the name of such and such, I say this, or I pray in this name, or by the power of such and such. It was the case with Jewish rabbis brought into situations like this. It's been the case with other world religions, and it continues to be the case even when Christians today perhaps have come into contact with some kind of demonic activity, or even such as elders, like James says, praying over a sick person. You'll see people saying, in the name of Jesus we pray, or by the power of God I command you, but not so with Jesus. This is it right here. When he does it, He himself utters the command. With a word, he heals. With a word, he overcomes the power of sin. And by that, I mean the effects of sin, the brokenness in this world that sin has brought. And certainly, sometimes, even things like demons and spirits and sicknesses or whatever can even be directly tied to our own sinful actions. Jesus has all authority, and that's what Matthew is getting at, so that's what I'm getting at. Jesus has the authority to overcome the power and effect of sin by a mere simple word from his mouth. And the last verse is where it really all ties together. The fourth reality is this. The reign and authority of Jesus is multifaceted. It says in verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Here's what I mean when I say that it's multifaceted. Matthew is deliberately connecting a prophecy from Isaiah in the Old Testament 
regarding the Messiah and the work of Jesus. Why don't we turn there for just a few minutes? Turn to Isaiah 52, verse 13. Isaiah 52. This is what theologians have called a servant song, a song about the servant of God, the servant, Jesus. Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13 and going through verse 12, really the end of chapter 53. Let's read it. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, every one, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall, be, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities." Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is one of the most famous prophecies regarding the Messiah in the Old Testament. And it's one that the Jews would have held dear and known well. And Matthew, interestingly, points to Jesus' healing ministry in chapter 8 here and says, this is what Isaiah was talking about in the servant song prophecies. Now, I don't know about you, but as I read Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12, I wasn't doing a lot of thinking about physical healings. 
There's a lot of language in this passage we just read about the sin of man and the sinlessness of the Messiah and making the unrighteous righteous and the punishment of God being laid on the Messiah in the place of sinners. But Matthew is saying in Matthew 8 verse 17 that this healing miracle story little group here was to fulfill what Isaiah said in 53 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Or as Matthew puts it at the end of verse 17, he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. He says the healing of the leper, the healing of the centurion, the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, and yes, the healing of the many, whatever was going on with them, is all connected to this servant song prophecy of Isaiah 52 and 53. And so apparently it had been the case all along, whether or not people recognized it, that Jesus' arrival would include physical healing and spiritual healing. Apparently, Jesus' mission was multifaceted. His authority, his reign, his goals were multifaceted. Now when you read Matthew 8, verse 17... Perhaps you would wonder if Matthew was somehow, and for some reason, leaving out or maybe under-spiritualizing or even perhaps misinterpreting Isaiah's servant song by applying its words to physical disease rather than to spiritual sin and sickness. When you read Matthew's quote in chapter 8, it seems simple enough. He did all this to fulfill what Isaiah said. But then when you go read the whole servant song in its whole context like we just did and then read or hear the connection that Matthew is making between it and these healings, you may come away wondering, what was Matthew doing here? Because it seems like Isaiah, at least, was thinking primarily about the Messiah's mission to deal with sin and redeem sinners, not necessarily just come to deal with physical sickness. I don't have these on the screen, but I'm going to give you five reasons why I don't think Matthew is misinterpreting anything. And I assume you agree with me. First of all, the New Testament quotes of the Old Testament are often snippets of something from a larger context. And so when a New Testament author, whether Matthew or otherwise, does this, like Matthew's doing right here, there's no need to think that they're not aware of the large larger context just because they include a snippet. We don't need to think, first of all, that Matthew was somehow ignorant of the true or fuller meaning of Isaiah's servant song. Second reason is that the rest of Matthew's Old Testament quotes give us no reason to think that he didn't know exactly what it says and what it means. Remember, we said this at the beginning of our study in Matthew, of the four gospel writers, Matthew quotes the Old Testament the most. And his Old Testament quotes have not given us the impression that he's misunderstanding or misinterpreting anything. His future quotes don't either. So there's no reason for us to wonder about his interpretation of Isaiah 53. Third reason, the Hebrew language in Isaiah 53, in its original writing, literally can be translated, he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. And so that may be part of the reason why Matthew's rendering of Isaiah 50, what we know of as Isaiah 53, 4 in your Bible, doesn't sound quite the same as Isaiah's rendering of those words in the Old Testament in your Bible. Even though Isaiah 53 is clearly what Matthew is referring to, his wording 
illnesses and diseases does sound slightly different than, at least in my ESV, the griefs and sorrows that you'll see in front of you. And those who read and heard the original Hebrew would have heard infirmities and sorrows, and therefore would have thought about physical things in the Messiah's work. And in fact, later on, and I'm getting a little bit technical and historical here, bear with me, later on, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, which is known as the Septuagint, some people say Septuagint, I'll leave it to Brian to correct us, he's the scholar, whether it's supposed to be Septuagint or Septuagint, I call it Septuagint. It's abbreviated by three letters, LXX, if you see it somewhere, it means the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It translated the original Hebrew as sins, so spiritually. And so those who also would have read the Septuagint in Matthew's day definitely also had the spiritual in mind as well as the physical. So what I'm saying is that Matthew would have had both the spiritual and the physical in mind as he made this connection. He knew it. The fourth reason is that while the precise wording in Isaiah 53 in its original, con- in its original translation is physical, the rest of the context shows that it is connected to things that are explicitly spiritual. And so Matthew is seeing this connection. And then finally, there's, of course, the little matter of the doctrine of inspiration, which is vital for us as we read and interpret and apply the Bible. The doctrine of inspiration simply teaches us that every word of every book of the Bible was supernaturally breathed out by God and is therefore totally trustworthy as it was written down by human authors that he ordained to the task. So you could even just skip all those other things I said and simply park stubbornly on this one. You'd be right to do so. Matthew's gospel is inspired by God. And so if he's telling us there's a connection of this kind between Isaiah 53, 4, and his verse here, then it's there. He's telling us that Jesus' healing of physical diseases was part of the fulfillment of the prophecy of the Messiah in Isaiah 53. And so Matthew is showing us that Jesus is laying the foundation, so to speak, for his authority over sin by showing his authority over sin's effects. The fact that the nature of Matthew's quote from Isaiah 53 is physical in its precise wording, but spiritual in its whole context should tell us something. It should tell us that the most profoundly important way that Jesus deals with the consequences and effects of sin being the physical trials and pains and sorrows of this life, the most profound way he deals with those things is by bearing sin and its penalty. We must also, though, remember that Jesus' mission was multifaceted. Though certainly singular in its primary goal, it was multifaceted. He came to deal with sin, most importantly through the bearing of its penalty on the cross, but also through revealing his power and authority over sin by dealing with that which has come from sin, its effects and consequences. And so for Matthew, these This first group of three miracle stories, there's more to come, pointed to the fact that the cross was coming. 
If you read Matthew's book from start to end in one sitting, it'll become crystal clear that Jesus' mission was multifaceted. The cross was where the greatest problem, the root of all sicknesses, would be addressed once and for all. But on the road to that cross, sin's effects and consequences were also confronted and defeated over and over again in a display of his power over it and in a display of his exercising of his authority as the king. And so if you're wondering why Matthew is connecting the physical and the spiritual, it's because apparently Matthew wants to communicate and also understands the multifaceted nature of the Messiah's ministry and mission. Even as this passage here before us and these three miracle stories together hones in on the physical, you need only to look at the rest of the context of Matthew's gospel and you'll have no question at all as to whether or not he meant to get across that Jesus came only to bear our diseases. No, that's clearly not the case. He clearly believes that Jesus came to atone for sin. In fact, the end of his gospel is its climax where he slows everything down and focuses in on the cross. But you know, even before the account of Jesus' death and resurrection, Matthew is showing over and over again that Jesus was the promised Messiah with authority over sin and its effects. I've said this multiple times throughout the series. Brian said things along these lines last week. It's going to keep coming over and over and over again. Matthew wants his readers to hear, and therefore the Lord wants you to hear, that Jesus is the promised Messiah with authority over sin and its effects. He had authority to heal. He had authority to speak. He had, as we'll see next week, authority to call people to be his disciples. And he had authority to forgive. And so when Jesus did arrive at the cross to bear our iniquities and atone for our sins and satisfy the just wrath of God by taking it on himself as a sinless substitute and saving us, he had already shown his saving power through his miraculous acts. And on top of that, there were times when he would heal and proclaim forgiveness at the same time or at least closely to each other. He had already proven his authority. He had already fulfilled the law of God when he got to the cross. He had already pushed back on the curse with his power and given us a taste of what the eternal kingdom of God would look like one day in full force forevermore. And friends, I think that's part of what makes the cross such a tragic yet beautiful scene. Here was our precious Savior, the Lamb of God, taking away the sins of the world. Here was our loving, gracious, gentle, tender healer, as well as our powerful, strong, authoritative, and heroic Savior. Here was the Christ taking our sins. Here he was touching our bodies and lives with both spiritual and physical healing. It's also what makes the empty tomb such a glorious and beautiful scene as well. That Savior, 
our Savior, emerging victorious from the grave, showing that all of those healings really were really performed by God in the flesh. And that the crucifixion really was a once-for-all substitutionary sacrifice for the redemption of souls. And that all those words that he had spoken and preached and taught and shared really were the authoritative commands of God in heaven. Now, let's zoom out for just a moment. How do we then respond to the power of Jesus, his reign and authority, his power over sin and his power over its effects in the world today. Should we use this passage and others like it to justify a sort of healing on demand expectation? Or to teach, as some air quotes Christians do, that you can't be sure you're seeing the saving power of God unless you're also seeing the healing power of God. I don't think that's true at all. Those, air quotes, Christians who teach this are false. And I'm not at all saying that God never exercises his healing. No, you, you perhaps have seen that. I have seen that. We've seen people in this church in our history seemingly miraculously healed to the amazement of professional physicians we've also seen prayers for healing answered with no. Many times. We've even seen death in this very body. And so it is not sound teaching to teach these healing stories as meant to show that physical healings are an essential aspect of gospel ministry, and without it, gospel ministry isn't happening at all. No, Jesus', Jesus healings had their ultimate purpose in displaying his authority to exercise his reign over sin and sinners and dealing with the effects of sin and bringing forgiveness for the penalty of sin. But the pushing back of the curse by the king through his healing ministry was a foretaste of the new heavens and new earth to come when there will be no sickness. That is one of the benefits, if you will, of the restoring and redeeming work of King Jesus. There is a day coming when there will be no more tears, there will be no more sickness, there will be no more sorrow. Praise God. We believe that by faith. We long for it in faith. But the atonement at Calvary brought a deeper, more essential healing than the mere physical restoration of a sick or broken body in this life. The most essential work that Jesus did at the cross was to bring restoration between God and man. And so I don't think that healings should be presumed upon any more than a resurrection body right now should be demanded. Both are spoken of in the New Testament as having already been accomplished but not yet fully realized. Rather, as we wait for the fully realized and final effects and benefits of the breakthrough of King Jesus' reign, we should marvel at the multifaceted, authoritative, immensely powerful reign of King Jesus. But I do want to give you two very simple implications that I think this reality of Jesus' authoritative reign has for us. Very simple. Two words, hope and joy. My friends, if Jesus is 
exercising authority now. If Jesus is our king, then his people can follow him with joy, can follow him with hope. This past week in our trip to Michigan, the family was sitting around talking about many things. And at one point, the topic came up about the observation on the part of several people from several different churches, in our family, that is, Kate's family, that in their local churches since 2020, the raising of hands in worship, the shoutings of amen in a song, or the verbalizing of amen in a sermon has decreased dramatically. And I had to say that I've noticed that to be the case at Redeemer as well. It may be that this is just something that the people of God have been going through the last couple of years. Perhaps the, the pandemic and all the strife from the election and the social justice issues and everything else have led to an increase in cynicism, pessimism, sorrow, perhaps discontentment after really a brutal couple of years in different ways for different people, but just in general, it's been really hard. People are more depressed. People are more sad. People are more angry. Perhaps that's why all of us in that room that night could attest to it being a little quieter, a little less joyful feeling in their church's gatherings for corporate worship. Now, I certainly would never want to judge anyone for feeling sad. We need to work through these things by God's grace, and it takes time. But my friends, we who are Christ's people are not hopeless. And we are a joyful people. Our king reigns. He is in control. He has all authority, and he is coming again for us. Here's another part of this. If Jesus is interested in these, regard, these people regarded as outcasts from the community of Israel, he's interested in you too. You're a Gentile, I assume. I guess I don't really know for sure about everybody, but I'm not aware of anyone in our body with Jewish ethnic background. And so, friends, if you are thinking that you don't belong in his kingdom, which is, by the way, part of what that fourth verse Paul pointed us to in Come Ye Sinners was about, talking about your conscience making you linger and thinking about your fitness or lack thereof, not talking about exercising, talking about whether or not you feel in your conscience like you are fit to be in the presence of the king. Even if you think you don't belong in the kingdom, while in one sense you're right because we don't deserve his mercy and love, in another sense you're wrong. Because Jesus doesn't care if you're a leper, if you're a Gentile, or in Jewish society at that time, a woman viewed in a negative lesser light. He cares about you. He wants a relationship with you. That's cause for joy. That's good news. Consider that a little further throughout this week. Our, our fellowship groups aren't meeting this week, but the application questions can be just considered by you, perhaps in a family worship time. What are some other implications that the reign and authority of King Jesus has for our lives today? 
And so why do we have the kids in VBS sing, he is king, he is king, Jesus Christ is king of kings, not just acted like or will be, is king of kings? Why would I call Matthew's gospel a gospel about an unexpected kingdom? Why should we think about King Jesus first and foremost when we hear the word king, not just Charles or anyone else? At least one answer One reason is found in Matthew's message in his gospel. The king had arrived. The king's reign was totally authoritative over sin, over its effects, and over its penalty. And so Jesus' reign was beginning to look like nothing anyone had ever seen before, sound like nothing anyone had ever heard before. A king who, as I quoted D.A. Carson a couple of weeks ago, who wasn't there to trounce the Romans like they thought he was. A Messiah whose miraculous healings pointed to the need for spiritual healing and only foretasted a later day when his reign would be fully realized and fulfilled. A Messiah who was a conquering king, but who was at the same time a gentle and lowly servant shepherd. A king who had and exercised great power and authority, but not for himself, for the glory of his father and for the good of those on whom he had set his love an unexpected king, wouldn't you say? Let's pray. Almighty God in heaven, please graciously grant that your word, which we have now heard, would be inscribed inwardly on our hearts. As we receive your word and its message. May we do so with meekness, with humility, with affection for you, with love and reverence for you and fear of you. Bring about the fruit of the Spirit in us as a result and cause us to bear that fruit, to live in holiness, to follow your commandments as our King. And may it please you to use us to lead those who are lost and wandering and confused into the way of the truth. So may what we have heard this morning not be a time of hearing without doing, and may it also not be a time of hearing without going. May we go with this message. May we not leave here just to return to our rat race, our rhythms without any intention of spreading the news of salvation through our Christ. All this we pray for the honor and praise of the name of our great Savior Jesus. Amen. Let's take a few moments and continue in prayer together, meditating on what this passage has taught us today.